Welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys, super excited about the episode today. Bryce and Christy from Millennial Revolution are joining us on the show to talk about their new book, Quit Like a Millionaire. This is going to be a fantastic episode. But before we go to that, we actually have several things that we wanted to talk about. First and foremost, I want to check in with my co-host, Brad. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan. I am doing quite well. Yeah, I actually have a, a quick update. So as we speak, there are solar panels going up on my house. Nice. Brian Feraldi will be so proud. Yeah, <laughs> for real. Yeah, it's been a long, long wait. I mean, there have been, I guess, a ton of people signing up for solar panels here in Richmond, and it certainly got pushed out a little bit farther than I hoped. But these things are going in. They were there all day yesterday installing, and they should be done today. I think once the energy company comes and, and inspects it and gets us a new meter, we'll be up and running next week, and I will be producing power. Yeah, this is really cool, Brad. So we actually talked about this in episode 105R, a solar panel cost analysis. At that point in time, I mean, your action was, I'm going to go do it. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds great. I'm going to do it. So now you have actually done it. It is being installed. And I'm curious, like when you reflect back on that, I mean, I could see how someone would look at that and say, well, that's a pretty big cost outlay. I mean, that's that's not in that's not like changing a light bulb to an LED light bulb when it burns out, you know, just to refresh your audience who aren't going to go back and listen to 105R, which they should do. You know, what was the impetus for that? It truly was episode 105R with Brian Feraldi. He came and talked to us about this solar panel installation he had done at his house in Rhode Island. And actually, the financials and economics behind his installation are are slightly better than mine, just because I guess the power system there actually purchases back unused electricity, etc. But what's cool is it's just about the numbers at the end of the day. For me, it looks like it's going to be somewhere in the vicinity of a 10% return, I think somewhere between 9 and 10%. So this is a big cost outlay. It's, it's going to be, after the tax credit, somewhere around maybe $20,000. So not something I just jumped into lightly. But when I looked at it and said, okay, this thing is probably going to produce somewhere between $1,800 and $2,000 worth of electricity each year. And if you could guarantee me that type of return, I'm going to jump on it. I mean, I I would do that for any other bill that I had in the house. I can't think of anything else at the moment where there's an option. But damned if I haven't been brainstorming to to try to come up with things. But I think this is going to have really great results for for my family. I think not only will it be that roughly 9 or 10% return, but I suspect our behavior is going to change with consumption of electricity. I've actually already noticed it since we've contracted for the solar panels and, and well before they were installed. Like, I've been turning off more lights. I've been thinking about the the temperature in our house, just being much more cognizant of it. So 
I think the game will be, how can we get a $0 electric bill for the year? That is my wow. my stated goal. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be possible, honestly, but uh, that's the goal. So we'll see. Wow. zero What you described there was a behavior change. And that's interesting because if you go back just a week, I was talking about a stated goal of some behavior change on my part. And the tool that I was leveraging, a little bit less expensive than solar panels, was <laughs> YNAB. You need a budget. I'd like to give you guys some updates around this adventure because really I think some cool stuff is actually happening in my own life. And, you know, I think it runs around six or $7 a month, $84 for the year. And the impetus for doing that was, but if it changes your behavior and you spend less, far less as a result of implementing this tool, then it will be worth it, especially if on top of that, it gives you a sense of security and control over your money, which has been a desire that my wife has been expressing to me. Is there a way that I can get more involved on the day-to-day level of our budget? I've been using it for one week and already I'm noticing a few things. And to his credit, I'm going to quote Jesse Meekham, who's the founder of YNAB just a couple times here. There's a couple terms that they use that I've already noticed being implemented. One is give every dollar a job, which I feel like is actually happening. And then two, and this is one that I really appreciate it, and it's going to be tied to this next segment, scarcity is clarity. Keep that in mind going into this next segment with Bryce and Christy. Scarcity is clarity. The reason that I noticed that on my part is that we, as it happens, get paid on the 15th of each month. That's just kind of our set time to get paid. And when you plan your budget out for the month, In our case, you know, you get to July 1st. Oh, great. A new budget starts, right? And so let me start forward projecting the money that we're going to spend over the course of July, but you haven't gotten paid yet, right? But you have credit cards. So you can just put, you could front load your spending on your credit cards. YNAB and Jesse's in particular encourages you to take advantage of that built-in scarcity and don't spend money you haven't got yet. So the goal of YNAB over time is to change your habits so you actually can now calculate the age of your money. So you're spending the money that you earned in past months. You're not spending the money that you're going to earn this month. And what that does by definition is it actually builds an additional buffer into your life. So long before you have a fully funded emergency fund, long before you have FU money, you have space, right? Because the money that you're going to be spending in the current month is money that you earned in prior months. Now, it seems like such a small thing but I had kind of taken it for granted. And I think this is a good behavior shift. And I'm already noticing that as a result of that, whereas you might start a new month, then you say, okay, we'll, we'll lax up. We'll spend what we want. And then towards the end of the month, you can kind of, then you're tightening it back up again to get to the last day before you start over again. I find that I actually put something on back on the shelf that I was like, you know what? I'll see you in two weeks. You know, <laughs> it was something like that. And that, those little things in aggregate can be very powerful. So yeah, that last thing you mentioned, that that surprises me that there really is that behavior change. I know when we talked about it a week or two ago on the roundup, you said that you would hope that you would save potentially a couple thousand dollars by using YNAB. And in all honesty, it didn't really make sense to me, but, but that's my frame on life. My behavior probably would not change, I suspect. But that's really cool to see that like within a week or two of using this, that you're actually changing buying habits. So I mean, quite literally you are going to save hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, either by deferring or ultimately saying, you know, I'm not going to make that purchase, right? It goes back to Liz from Frugal Woods with the 72-hour rule. I think, what was it, way back in episode 12, was it we had Liz on? Wow, good memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, she talked about this 72-hour rule where if you're thinking about making a purchase, just wait, wait three days and see what happens. You might decide 
you know, I really do need that item, that that's going to be important for me. I value that. Or you might decide, you know, that was just an impulse buy and I just simply don't need it. I don't need to spend my precious resources, which ultimately comes down to your time because you used your precious, precious time to earn that money. I don't need to waste those resources on this item that I just simply don't need. So yeah, Jonathan, that's super cool to see that in, in real life. And you're about sticking with the theme of behavior change. I think if you were to think back at the episode that we did with Jim from Route to Retire, that there's an aspect that's actually reflected in his own path and his own journey to financial independence. Yeah, agreed. And I think while you're using YNAB, he was using Quicken. Remember that? I mean, this was amazing. He was a Y2K software engineer. And I think he was just testing this out for his own enjoyment in essence. And he found out, quote, how bad off he was. And he said it changed everything. And he wound up trusting them entirely. And and I think we were kind of taken aback almost at, at just how much he changed his behavior just from using Quicken. He said, I love the ability to actually see when my payoff date was going to be. The psychological win in itself is to go, oh my gosh, I'm only six months away from being completely paid off. This is fantastic. And that was my big incentive to get that done. It's that gamification element. And you can apply that to getting out of debt. And you can certainly apply that to getting to the point where working is optional. It's just a matter of degrees. Uh, one of the things that I would like to do, honestly, I was so inspired by Jim's story. It is a regular story. This is a regular family that achieved something remarkable through replicable steps, you know, just making sure that you're saving more than you're spending for an extended period of time, living within your means. And I think it's easy to gloss by that and go straight to the crazy hardcore stuff. And while it's sometimes inspiring and it's aspirational, it's not necessary. In many cases, this is really just about realigning your spending around your values and finding the sweet spot that allows you to maintain a very strong savings rate over an extended period of time. I love to complicate things sometimes just for the adrenaline of it. But at the same time, I always like, I love the balance of making sure that you understand this is a simple process at its heart. This is a very, very simple, doable path. We got this email from Danielle. She says, hi guys, I'm so happy to have found choose FI. You guys have already changed my life. I'm starting out late in the game, but I have oodles of determination to drive me. Basically, I think the biggest hurdle for me at age 47 with no financial knowledge, is just learning the basics. Once I have a grasp on the building blocks, I will create my future life using everything I've learned. Please don't forget about us newbies to the game. We're counting on you. God bless you and your business and your family's much respect from Oklahoma. This is our stated goal. It is absolutely to find stories that you can relate to, find people that have walked a mile in your shoes and, and use our platform to push that out to as many people that can benefit as possible. I actually talked to Zach, who's our showrunner, and asked him to put together, and Brad, I just told you about this a few minutes ago, put together just an application page on our website. And I use the word application, but really it's just a, a way for people to go to if they think they have a story that they think other people could benefit from because maybe they haven't heard it reflected on the show up to this point. They have something to add to the conversation. I want to stress, you do not need a blog to come on the show. You do not need a podcast to come on the show. You just need to have a story that you feel is worth hearing. And we just want to provide a place for you to put that information so we can figure out a way to air it on the show so as many people can benefit from it as possible. Like Danielle, who did not find this stuff at the age of 20 years old, did not do everything perfectly, but is getting started now. When's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. Second best time today. What what does it look like to start today? And I think in order to encourage people that this is possible, we need to reflect those ideas and those actions that people are taking. Yeah, I agree completely. And people get inspiration from stories that are somehow similar to them. While it's great to do everything right from the time you're 22, 
that's just not most people's lives. Danielle finding Phi in her 40s, that's a story that is really, really interesting, right? And if you think about things, not in terms of absolute age, but in terms of timelines, where is Danielle going to be 10 years from now as a result of starting today? Yeah, I mean, it's incalculable how much better off she'll be. Oh, we can calculate it. We will uh, use simple math to calculate uh, it. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very funny. Yeah, I mean, just taking action and making your life better. It's hard to do wrong with that, right? So that is super cool. And, And you know, it's funny when you said application, I'm like, oh, I don't love that word. But that's the best way. Like we've always said, oh, shoot us an email at feedback at choosevi.com. But that wasn't really good enough. We want your stories. And that's the crucial part. That's why we put that page together. So yeah, just head over to choosefi.com slash story, S-T-O-R-Y, choosefi.com slash story. All right, guys, I want to circle back just real quick in passing to the episode that we did last week. That was episode 133R, Should I Pay Off My Mortgage or Invest? What I love about this show is that you're not limited to Brad and Jonathan's knowledge base. Our listeners are some of the smartest listeners in the world. And you guys let us know when we missed or oversimplified something or did not think of something. And the great thing is we never try to mic drop anything. This is a continuation where we go back to the drawing board and we iterate the message until we come to very nearly absolute truth (laughs) or a close approximation. (laughs) I'm I'm not going that far. (laughs) I feel confident. There were a couple of things that you guys mentioned. One, the mortgage deduction, taxes, capital gains, just a few different things like that. We have a bunch of value added comments and some voicemails from Sean, the Phi tax guy. It's too much for this episode just because we have this epic segment planned. We are going to spend probably about 15 minutes on it next week, kind of diving through some of the things we missed and how it might alter the numbers, bringing in your feedback on that. So next week's title I'm predicting will be called the plot thickens. <laughs> I am a sucker for tropes, but this week we're going to move right into the segment. The only other thing I wanted to mention, just because we told you there was a spreadsheet attached to last week's episode. It went out in the newsletter this week. If you were on our newsletter, then you would have already received it. If you want to get access to it going forward, it's going to be in the choose if I vault. Either way, if you're not already on our newsletter, this is where you get early access to any additional resources that our guests mention or offer or create for us. So you want to make sure you're on that. Just go to chooseify.com slash subscribe, or just go to the homepage at chooseify.com. There is an easy way for you to get on our newsletter right there. And then after the fact, if you're listening to this, you know, months from now, access the Chooseify vault and all of those resources will be documented tied to the episode for your ease of access. All right, guys, super excited about today's episode. We're going to be speaking with Christy Shen and Bryce Leung with their new book, Quit Like a Millionaire. Brad and I read this independently and together we came back to the table and said, wow, that was both an incredible story and so actionable. There's so much here that you can use both to inspire yourself and then to arm yourself with information when you really need to pull the trigger and you're executing a drawdown strategy. This is just an incredible book and I am so excited to share both the book and their story with our community. And with that, Bryce and Christy, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks so much, guys. That means a lot coming from, from you guys. We really appreciate that. And we love coming back on Choose FI. So Christy, I want to dive right into your book. And I want to talk, honestly, I just want to set the starting line. The beginning of your book basically begins with a story. And in this story, you are standing on the top of a medical waste heap. I, I didn't make that yeah. up. I'm curious. Tell us about this. So when I grew up in China, we didn't really have a lot of money. And my family at one point lived on- When you say uh, you didn't really have a lot of money, what does that that mean? Like help our audience understand not having a lot of money. When I first uh, came to the West, to Canada, I had never seen a toilet before. (laughs) And I was amazed by hot showers. 
So the, the place that we lived in was basically like a farmhouse that the only source of heating was uh, we had to burn coal to stay alive. I don't know if you guys have ever seen coal before. That's kind of I, like a I question. Have, I, I have seen coal. Okay. You have seen. Okay. So Jonathan <laughs> has seen, has seen it. <laughs> so I'm not yeah, sure I've seen yeah, burning seen coal. coal. Okay. That's kind of like my privilege test. <laughs> like, have you seen coal before? Growing up in that circumstance, it, it was basically at one point, to give you a specific numbers, uh, we lived on 44 US cents a day. And I think the definition of poverty, like world poverty, is that uh, anyone living on less than one US dollars a day. Back then in China, because they had just come out of communism and you know they were just opening up to the West, 82% of the population was in poverty, like lived on less than a dollar a day. So that that was my reality. And then when we actually immigrated to the West, it was I was just amazed by everything. Like I I didn't know that you could actually take a hot shower, that you didn't have to like wash yourself with a bucket. <laughs> and I didn't know how to use a toilet because like the bathroom was basically just like a giant hole in the ground. Uh, so I would say my my upbringing taught me a lot about perspective. Because when I first came to Canada, my dad was like a student in the university getting his uh, PhD. We still had to like send money back home because we had a whole family to support. And every time the the kids made fun of me in school for my clothing, because a lot of like thrift store clothing and things like that, the perspective of growing up in China gave me the ability to think that that was not really a big deal. Like it, it didn't really get to me because I was like, you think this is poverty? Okay, you haven't seen anything because growing up in China picking up toys out of a, a waste heap was just absolutely normal. Like around me, kids were, kids just thought that that was completely normal. You don't have a kid, you don't have a toy. Okay. Just go get a bunch of uh, elastic bands from, because there's a whole box of it over there and then just make up our own toys. Like we'll just make a, make a, a Chinese jump rope and then we'll just play with that. Every time you actually had a problem, like when you're bored, you can't just throw money at the problem. Like my parents are just like showing me their empty wallets. Like I don't have money. What, what, what do you want me to do? So figure, figure out how to entertain yourself. Uh, so I think that kind of upbringing, I don't see it as a negative the way that a lot of my peers did, because growing up in China gave me the perspective that if you have four walls, you have your parents, you have water, you have food, you're basically privileged. You're, you're already you know, much better than 99% of the world's population. I see that as a very positive lesson, despite the fact that when I told my peers about this um, later on, they were just like, wow, that's horrifying. Like how horrible must have that been? But I didn't actually tell them about my parents' background, which was even worse in that um, they grew up during this class warfare type of system where anybody who was born a landlord, anybody who worked, whose parents worked for the opposition party, which was the nationalist party, was basically sent off to a labor camp for 10 years, like sent off to the countryside to do um, really backbreaking labor, given very little food. And that was their reality for 10 years. So given my background and the, my parents' background, my parents, whenever they try to teach me like a lesson about life, whenever there was a struggle, they would also, and I talk about this in the book, they would also tell me that it's about chiku, which in Chinese actually means eat bitterness. So eating bitterness is actually considered character building in, in our culture. Whether you have an obstacle in life, it, you always have to look at it from a suffering builds character and suffering makes you stronger. So I think growing up in China gave me this perspective that uh, whenever you have a problem or if even if I grew up in poverty and all my other friends had like much better, nicer things than me, it really wasn't a big problem because it could be so much worse. And most of the world's population, the statistics say that if you make $32,000 a year, you're already like top 1% of the entire world. And uh, actually, until we wrote the book, 
We didn't actually realize this, but her family history is that they were on kind of the wrong side of the revolution. And the reason why they were persecuted is because they were landlords. So if you owned real estate, you were literally targeted by the government for persecution and killed. And some of her family members were actually killed during that period. And I was like, huh. That kind of explains your deep-rooted suspicion <laughs> of real estate, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. For context, yeah, we did. We had Bryce and Christy on. It was episode 47. And, and in that episode, the title of it was The Cult of Home Ownership. And you guys have taken a very hard stance on that vehicle. <laughs> uh, so Maybe. And I was like, oh, gee, that's why we really... It's like, I, never, I never made that connection. Today's so episode is a it's, root it's, cause it's, analysis. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, it's literally in her blood. In my genes, yes. That is why. Yes. Like, Chrissy, obviously, these are incredible life lessons, right? Suffering builds character, this perspective of if you have four walls, water, food, you're privileged. But I'm curious about hope and inspiration. So I'm thinking about myself sitting here in an ultra-privileged, upper-middle-class Richmond, Virginia. I have two daughters, and obviously, I want the world for them. And I'm curious, your father left rural China to get his PhD in Canada. And I mean, that's not the logical step. He obviously had to have this hope and inspiration for himself and for your entire family. And I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about that for a few minutes. There's a chapter in my book in which I, it's, it's very extreme. It's called Be Educated or Die. <laughs> and there's like a story in, I tell which kind of shows my dad's perspective on education. So my dad believed that education was the way out of poverty. And it was the only way out of poverty. Like for him, it was really life and death. And I, I tell the story of why this is. So coming to Canada, yes, that was definitely like a hope-driven decision, but it was actually the also the only choice because the only way that he actually was able to do something with his life was um, after like he was in a labor camp for 10 years, he worked in a factory uh, making lathes. So it wasn't until Chairman Mao died and then the uh, government decided to reinstate education and allow people to actually take a state-driven exam to be able to go back to university and actually get a degree that my dad was able to not just pull himself out of poverty, but pull my entire family, like my grandparents and his brothers and sisters out of poverty. So from his perspective, it really was this logical decision of I have to do something to save my family and education and then immigrating abroad in order to get more opportunities and send money back home was the only way that he he could actually save his family. The hope that came from going abroad and being able to get past the entrance exam and then actually be able to make a living and be able to send that to his family, it was driven by hope, but it was also driven by the need for survival, like the need to get out of your existing situation because you don't know when the government's going to come and try to kill everyone again. So I have a very strong stance on education, but I talk about you know, it's not just education in like any type of education, like not all degrees are created equal. And if you want to figure out how money works, you really have to make logical decisions on how to get out of poverty by using education as a tool. Chrissy, in the first part of the book, you really talk about the scarcity mindset. And I, I want to set the premise here that in many times, scarcity mindset, especially in the business world, is talked about as a negative in that you need to spend money to make money, you know, that sort of thing. But I think one of the reasons we're having this conversation with you today, and we're talking about this book that you've written, is in large part due to this scarcity mindset. And and it seems to me that like the scarcity mindset was born in you out of a necessity based on your upbringing. I'd love to hear you explore that a little bit further. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that used to confuse me a lot whenever I read business books was they would kind of say scarcity mindset is bad and you should have the abundance mindset. I mean, I agree with that from a business point of view, you need to do that. But 
from a background point of view. It's like, well, people who have the scarcity mindset don't want the scarcity mindset. They're like that because it's something outside of their control. Like maybe they were born into poverty and scarcity mindset was the only thing they knew in order to actually stay alive. So I feel like the scarcity mindset has been unfairly treated in that way. Like for me, I see it as a positive because if it weren't for the scarcity mindset, I would never have valued money to the extent that I did. And I never would have become FI because every time I had a problem, I would just think, yeah, just throw money at the problem. There's always going to be more. Who cares? Right. So I think there's definitely a benefit to the scarcity mindset. But as with everything, there's always two sides to the story. So we'll talk about the downsides of scarcity mindset in a bit. But for me, I attribute the scarcity mindset to getting me to where I am today because it actually helped me develop a lot of characteristics and creativity that I would have never had. So um, some of the research that I did for the book was teaching you that sometimes scarcity breeds creativity. Like if you have constraints, you can be a lot more creative rather than like if you're writing a story and it's like just go in all different directions, write whatever you want versus there are some constraints and some structure, you end up making a better product because of creativity. And as a child, because we couldn't actually afford cable because we were sending money back home, I had to amuse myself by going to the library, which was completely free. And as a result of reading all those books, I ended up developing my love of writing and getting to push myself to learn English and being able to excel in a subject that I was really bad at because I actually didn't waste a lot of time watching TV because I didn't actually have the money to um, buy video games or watch a lot of TV on cable. Yeah, among the two of us, uh, because of the background that you came from, Scarcity mindset definitely made her the one that was watching the budget. Her mind is like a steel trap when it comes to prices. She still remembers like when we were putting the blog together and then I was like trying to figure out, hey, do you remember how much we spent on this flight to London like seven years ago? And then she just remembers immediately. It was $800. Yeah. (laughs) 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 She just remembers every price that she's ever seen to because money was so important to her that it was a matter of survival. Like I still don't know how much a pound of grapes is supposed to be. She does all the shopping. She does all the budgeting. I don't. don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to stop playing this game. (laughs) The price is wrong, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Bryce, have you found... Have you been a moderating factor on Christy at all? I know what's funny is Jonathan has actually been a moderating factor on me in my life. (laughs) But but I'm curious, like, how has your relationship worked in that regard? Like, have you each gotten influence from each other with this scarcity and openness? Or, you know, talk me through that. Sort of. I mean, like, I don't try to moderate that part of her because it is such a big part of our personality. And it is kind of useful that she's able to like get a bag of groceries and she somehow spent like $6. But what the scarcity mindset that has a real problem with is when it comes time to actually investing stuff, like when you want to put money in the stock market, it goes up, it goes down, it's incredibly volatile. You know what, you could put money into it and immediately it'll fall. And that does happen. So from her perspective, she is the scarcity mindset that causes her to be extremely vigilant about prices also causes her to be extremely pessimistic when it comes to investing. So that's kind of where I take over because I didn't have that growing up. And I can understand that temporary volatility will result in higher growth later. So I was able to take my background and then kind of add it to hers. And that's how we create this whole FI journey. Our savings, I mean, I mean, like before I've said before that after, you know, saving up for a house, we had like half a million dollars uh, when we were still trying to look for a house. And that was after about six years of working. The reason why that happened is because she's insanely good at budgeting. But we were trying to buy a house because that's kind of what everyone else does. 
But it was me that kind of came into it and said, why don't we try to invest it? Why don't we turn this passive income stream? Maybe we can retire. Maybe we can do that kind of stuff. And she just looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> so she's really good at gathering bricks. And then I kind of went and looked at that giant pile of bricks and be like, hey, maybe we could build a castle out of that. Like, like, I, 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 yeah, uh, yeah. I was, <laughs> no, no, no. But it was kind of like, I, I, I had sorry, to come I and, myself. It just felt like it was there for the taking. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I kind of had to have my more optimistic perspective come in and say, hey, if we invest all this money that you spend all this hard work saving, we can then turn it into more money. And then that's how we became a millionaire three years later. And then that's how we then turn into a passive income stream. And that's how we were able to retire. So it really required the two different backgrounds, backgrounds yeah. to like come together to form this whole FI journey. I want to talk a little bit more about the scarcity mindset and how it related, Christy, to your decision with profession. You and Bryce ended up in a similar profession. But I mean, you, you use the words, you know, it made me more creative. But in this book, you also said it made me more resilient. It made me more adaptable. It gave me perseverance. There's all these really strong character qualities that came that you would attribute to that scarcity mindset. The way that I read the first part of this book was that education was your golden ticket out of abject poverty. I think that's something that maybe here in the United States, we don't, Brad and I personally on this show, to some degree, some varying degree, fail to recognize when we have the conversation about whether or not you should go to college. But for you, clearly, almost, I, I can't even make a case against it. For you, education, for your father, for yourself, it gave you a ticket out of the medical waste heap. I mean, that's profound. But when you're now choosing a profession, you're choosing a degree, that scarcity mindset drove you to pick something with something that we talk about, a good ROI. And you developed an equation, which I don't know where you got this from or where you had the, you know, the, the planning or the wherewithal to really come up with this, but you developed a, a, an equation to basically help you track down how to get the best ROI from your degree. And I'd love to hear you unpack that for our audience. Sure. Okay. This is something we like to call the pot score, which is pay over tuition. So when I was evaluating degrees, I had two main degrees in mind, which was writing, which is what I love to do. And then computer engineering, which is something that I did some research on. And I knew that you could make a lot of money and also was something that had a lot of jobs. So it was like very fertile in that ground. So the pay over tuition score means that you take how much you would get paid above a minimum wage, right? Because if you just don't get a degree, you can immediately get a minimum wage job outside of, I knew that, outside of high school without getting a degree. So I took, so for example, computer engineering, you could earn like 80000 to to $100,000. And then minimum wage, I think it was like around $30,000. So the difference of that would be, let's say $70,000. And then you would divide that by how much it costs to actually earn the degree, which like computer engineering was around like $50,000. Why I made that decision was because I didn't want to just get a degree for the sake of getting a degree, because I had seen other people and researched about other people who have put hundreds of thousand dollars into getting a tuition. Like I was also looking to go to the States at the time. So then getting yourself into a lot of debt just to go to an Ivy League college to be able to say, I went to Harvard, but you know, you spend a hundred thousand dollars and then maybe you got a degree that was maybe not that lucrative in terms of earning a salary. And then at the end of it, you still earn maybe just $10,000 over minimum wage. Does that actually make sense? So I looked at that and I calculated the indexes for the different degrees, like accounting, for example, engineering, software engineering, uh, writing. And then I tried to figure out what is the best return on investment? What, what gives me the best pot score so that every single moment I spend getting this degree and every penny I put into it will be returned to me tenfold and will actually 
I'll actually be able to find a job afterwards because I knew that my dad was still sending money back home at the time and I could not be able to rely on him in case it didn't work out. And he actually did tell me and sit me down and say like, you know, honey, I know you love to be a writer. That's always been your dream. But dreams are just for rich people. Like he said that dreams are for privileged people. The rest of us, we have to use education to be able to pull ourselves up. You, you're you going to have to pick a degree that you can use to support yourself because I'm if it doesn't work out, I will not support you. Um, so that, Christy, that let me drove just me hop in there and just ask you from your perspective now, was your dad right? I, yeah, I think he's absolutely think so. right yeah. because, and I know this, not, I'm not just saying this based on feelings. I'm saying this based on fact, because I actually did do some writing, like writing a children's novel on the side while I was a computer engineer. And I found out that the average salary for a children's author was $5,000. A lot of the people that a I year. A, a year. Yeah. And a lot of the authors that I knew were actually working multiple other jobs. They had day jobs in order to be able to make ends meet. And not only that, through my research, I found out that 93% of all books published in the U.S. sell less than a thousand copies. So based on the statistics, I realized that if I had chosen my passion, if I had just decided to write a novel and then just see what happens, I would have had to get another job anyway. So I might as well have um, and been in debt at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And been in debt. So I might as well have picked a career where I'd end up being able to pay back the tuition easily and be able to find a job afterwards. And then once I became FI, then buy back my passion. I was actually going to ask you about that exact thing. So so a higher PAT score, pay over tuition is better, right? Mm-hmm. The higher is yep. probably better of just how this will end up playing out for you. So you in the book, you said you checked out creative writing and you got a negative 0.35. Uh, if you chose that as your profession right out the gate. <laughs> well, that, that that's moving in the wrong direction. You checked out accounting, 1.33, computer engineering, 2.16. You checked out plumbing 5.14. That was the interesting thing. Well, uh, she didn't evaluate plumbing way back then when she was growing up. But when we took what she did back then and kind of expanded the idea in the book, we were like, let's try to apply this to a whole bunch of different professions. Writing didn't turn out that great. And we were kind of expecting that. What was surprising is that doctor didn't turn out that great either. Like a, a medical doctor, they had to stay in school for so long and pay so much money uh, and then going into massive amounts of debt that using this method, I was kind of looking at being a doctor and being like, this doesn't really look that great. Yeah, you're making 300 grand a year starting off or, or whatever, but you had like, they, they were making but like the, time, the opportunity cost, the time cost, starting in your 30s, exactly. paying back the student loans with the interest, 0. 0.78 on the, in the score and lawyer, 1.09. These are fascinating yeah. numbers to be able to take degrees that have radically different paths and times of commitment and figure out a way to start comparing apples to apples. The reason I wanted to bring all that up is because when you kind of ran through this calculation uh, as you were picking your profession, one of the conclusions you came to, or maybe it's a look back, is that follow your passion, according to your dad, not such a great advice. We can't afford that. You have people that are relying on you and also passions change. And so I'm curious now with, you know, someone that is, is in the fortunate place of having the information that's in your book, that's just starting to think about a career, that's starting to balance that out with a dream of doing something really cool. Where's the balancing act? What's the sweet spot for really putting all this together into a framework? I think especially people when they haven't gone through like their life journey, the idea that we would have the exact same passion for the rest of our lives is kind of ludicrous. Like you you actually end up having a lot of passions in your life, right? And some of them may not pay better than others. So now that I've discovered financial independence, one thing that I think other people can take away, especially your listeners, is that you don't absolutely have to be fully FI in order to like, if your passions change, do something else. You might be able to become partially FI and then change careers, maybe go from something that pays you less 
less, but you're more passionate about, or your passions have changed. You've done that career for 10 years. Maybe it's time for a change. And you don't actually feel like you're leaping off the cliff into the unknown because your portfolio is covering all or partially a lot of your costs so that you can actually afford to take those risks. So now that I've gone through all that, I'm looking back on from the other side. I'm very thankful that I didn't just throw caution to the wind and pick whatever career it is, follow my passion only to find out that not only does it not pay well, but later on, I end up not being passionate about that thing or my passions change later on. So I think the takeaway is have some money to allow you to become partially FI and then experiment with your life. You might have multiple passions down the road. And uh, because you have that cushion of passive income, you can maybe try out different passions every five years. I think that would be a very rewarding life because then that would give you the ability to see exactly what it is that you want to do rather than guess. It's not about like, don't follow your passions ever. Some people, their passions just happen to be really well, high paying careers. My passion was computers. It literally was. So of course, following my passion was the right thing to do. But maybe you're one of those weird kids that like when they were six years old and they asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they said, systems analyst, systems analyst, systems analyst. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> go, for it. Yeah. go for it, dude. But if you want to be in a, a career that really doesn't pay very well, like a writer, then maybe go ahead and do it, but maybe don't rely on that to live. And the, the problem, I think the big struggle that people have when they're trying to make their career is they're trying to decide what they want to do for the rest of their life. Yeah. And the thing is, there's no one thing that we, you have to do for the rest of your life. Your decision about what you study does not determine what you do for the next until you die. And there is eventually a transition point when you stop having to worry about money and you start making decisions about what you want to do with your life that is not based on money and it's based on your passion. That point is called financial independence. I don't know. I think you guys have, may have heard of it. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fan. I know some podcasts. How do you There's feel about it? I'm a fan. Fire. Something somewhere. about fire. It's spreading. Yeah, some, some, you know I, these two guys I know say Just stuff like that. Pour on the gasoline. Chrissy, <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm curious, kind of going back to the start. It, it sounds like, obviously, you grew up with these lessons. And I think there's a story in here that I want you to talk about, about this can of Coke. And what an impact that had on your life. But what struck me is that this was not just a straight linear path of you knowing the price of everything and not spending. There was a time where you were a purse junkie, like a coach oh, yeah. purse junkie. It was very embarrassing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine now. But talk me through like how you go through this mental journey and how you wound up back on the other side of it. Um, so there's something that happens to immigrants, what I like to call the immigrant rebound effect, which is you go to the West, you lived in poverty, you know, you pull yourself out of poverty with education and you're earning a paycheck and you start thinking, I can afford all the things. So I must buy all the things. And then you look around at uh, all your coworkers and they all have their coach purses and their Louis Vuittons. And then you start thinking that this is a status thing. Like I, I want to be able to prove that I've made it into the middle class. So I, I got into that kind of competition with purses and that I started buying a lot of coach purses. And not only that, you know, when you go to a coach factory, I don't know if you guys know this, but <laughs> yeah, they other women no, were probably- been to a coach factory. <laughs> my friends would probably it's know this. Privilege where, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you go to a coach factory, there's these coupons that you get 30% off right away. So as soon as you walk into the store, you're like, I can't afford not to buy these purses because they're generally like I'm saving 70% right off the bat. And I'm in the States. I might as well buy a bunch of them. 
And so like Bryce was getting pretty annoyed because I had like purses all up my, like just both arms completely covered with purses. And I was like, grab those purses over there. And it was just making him run around, grab more purses. There was like a year where it was fashionable to have two or three on each arm at any given time. That was winning for you. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was totally winning. Um, So at that point I started spending more and more money on purses and not only just money, but a lot of time. Like I was watching these videos. I call them unboxing videos. Well, people call it unboxing yeah, videos. So, yeah, people I call them call unboxing them. videos. Yeah. Everyone calls it's it Everybody calls it. Fine. Caught me. You got me. It's basically just someone opening up a new purse and then just showing you all the hardware and like the different aspects. So I got really into that. So I started just buying more and more purses, but not because I needed purses, just because it was a status symbol. One day I was ordering my fifth purse online and I, w- I was drinking a can of Coke. And then one of my other purchases arrived, like somebody was delivering it. And so I just immediately ditched that can of Coke. And then I ran to the door and I, and I picked up my purse and then I went back to order my next purse. And it dawned on me looking at that can of Coke that for me, it was just like a waste now. Like, oh, I'm not going to finish the can of Coke. I'll just throw away, whatever. But when I first came to Canada, like that can of Coke was like my most precious prized possession because I had never drank anything. And that's like, Coke is like for rich people <laughs> in the rural area that I grew up in. Like you, like most people would not go for such a luxury. And when my dad first gave me a can of Coke, like I actually had a nosebleed because I was so excited about this thing. And I didn't even throw the can out. Like I used it to hold my toothbrushes. I used it like I was so obsessed with this new luxury that I had that now it's just like an afterthought. I was just like, wait, what happened to me? Like I went from treating this as the most prized possession and like a can of Coke is the most amazing thing in the world. So this is just a piece of trash. And now I want my new fancy purse and where is it? I need it now. So at that point I decided to step back and not actually buy the purse that I was ordering online. And it started to make me realize that I was going on this hedonic treadmill that was going nowhere good, that I was just going to keep buying things just to kind of show off and give me status rather than actually have value. So it was the can of Coke that brought me back to reality and made me realize, okay, this is stupid. I, I got to stop doing this. No, not everyone has that moment. I mean, like, I, I still know people back home that are like, oh, the 12th Louis Vuitton person. And then she took a one look around this person's apartment. And it's like, she's got like $20,000 worth of friggin' purses here. Jeez. Uh, so not everyone does that. And so I guess we're lucky that that happened early on and only four bags in. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. Whew. So you guys, both of you have picked a profession which has a high ROI. You followed the pot score and, and you guys are winning, right? And you guys have, you've given up your addiction to purses. In particular, it sounded like Coach and Louis Vuitton. <laughs> uh, and you guys have maybe even dialed up your savings rate further. What got you to start thinking about financial independence? Like what was that inflection point for you as opposed to scarcity mindset? We should just, we need to save our money. Help us bridge this gap here. Okay. So in the book, I talk about how as a child, I was taught that money is worth bleeding for. And like my mom at one point, like hit me for um, losing a pair of keys because that cost us a lot of money. But then later on, I realized that it's not money is worth bleeding for, but it's not worth dying for. And the epiphany moment that I realized this is when I watched my coworker almost die at his desk. He was working 14 to 16 hour days for three years straight One day he actually just collapsed at work and had to be rushed off to the hospital. And later on, we found out the uh, emergency doctor said that if he had been rushed there just half an hour later, he would have died. And this was from just, you know, having to pay the mortgage, struggling with uh, living that 
normal life of like trying to reach 65 for a pension and buying an expensive house and putting everything towards the mortgage. So at this point, I realized, hey, I escaped poverty and growing up in rural China, and I escaped the communists, which actually ended up killing members of my family, only to come to the West to die from and work at my desk. Like, what would be the point of all that? How Money did you die is worth- from work ethic? What a noble pursuit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it really, yeah, it, it really puts a new spin on the word deadline. Like he really just was dying from deadlines. And uh, it made me realize that it's not worth it. It really isn't worth it. Like if I figure out money, I don't have to do this. And if I don't figure out money, I won't be able to make it until I'm 65. Like forget the pension. What if you just run out of life? You're not even going to be able to make it to the pension. So that was my epiphany moment of what can we do to buy our freedom rather than work towards something that everyone else wants to work towards, get in debt, work crazy hours and die at your desk. So that's kind of when I came in and started saying, you know, our down payment fund here has grown to half a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Maybe we should look into investing. Maybe we should look into all these kinds of things. That's when I kind of went down the rabbit hole of uh, Mr. Money Mustache, J.L. Collins's blog, um, Mad Mad Fientist and these kinds of people that were actually doing this and were teaching people how to invest and uh, using index funds and Vanguard and all this kind of stuff. And and then that was when I kind of dialed up the math and learned the 4% rule and kind of said, okay, we're spending $40,000 a year. If we could either take this half a million dollars and buy this house and then pay it off over the next 25 years, or according to this math, and I would I generate a little spreadsheet and this kind of stuff, is we could leave our jobs in three years. And then she kind of went, what? I was like, no way. So I was like, There's no way that's... <laughs> yeah, like, what, 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 what sorcery is no this? Way. But then she looked at the math and she's just kind of like, yeah, that seems to work. It was really just our continued savings rate at that same rate plus investing uh, yeah. investing it at like 6%. And then that hit a million in three years. And she's like, huh, that does work. So we ended up doing that. And then that's kind of how we ended up here. And you guys truly have broken free at this point. I, I love keeping up with you and finding out where you are in the world. <laughs> where are you guys now? Where have you been the last couple of months? What does the next year look like? Tell me about your travels. I'm just so curious and envious. Yeah, yeah right so- now we're in the uh, we're in the UK right now. We just finished doing a Shitaka with Dale Collins, uh, Mad Scientist, Carl from Mister Fifteen Hundred, and Jillian from Montana Money. And just two weeks ago, we were in Norway. And then before that, we were in Thailand. And then before that, we were in Taipei. Uh, we were visiting Jeremy from Go Curry Cracker. And then after this, we're going to be flying back to Toronto for a little while, then going down to New York to do some book promotion stuff. And then after that, Portugal, uh, where the next talk was going to be. And then God knows where else. Like we were, we're literally just switching countries every month and, and just making stuff up as we go. That's great. I know your first year of travel cost you guys about $40,000. And I'm curious, what did 2018 cost you? And what do you predict for 2019? So 2018 was surprisingly around $40,000 again. And even though we actually spend the entire year in in Europe. Um, we were actually meeting some Chautauquan friends uh, for a reunion. And then we thought, hey, we're going to be in the UK. Why don't we Why don't we try to stay in Europe for a year by getting a German working holiday visa? So this is actually a visa. They have like an agreement between um, Canada and Germany in which you can actually just stay there for a year. You can choose to work or you can just choose to explore, but you can actually circumvent that 90 day like Schengen tourist visa, tourist visa uh, and by staying there for a whole year. And because we didn't have Southeast Asia to mitigate our costs, we mitigated our costs with 
with Portugal, Poland, and Eastern Europe, like Estonia, Latvia, places we had never heard of before we got there. And somehow that balanced out our budget to the point where we, we were still spending $40,000. Um, I think we just kind of get a hang of where to go and where the best quality of life always is. always know the price of grapes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the weird thing is, like, the first year of retirement, we spent $40,000. The next year of retirement is $40,000. This year, we're going to be hitting $40,000. Just inflation just doesn't seem to affect you when you travel. And that's just, you know how the 4% rule, it always assumes that you're taking inflation adjustments. We just haven't been taking inflation adjustments because inflation does, doesn't seem to exist when it's travel. It's really strange. Well, one of the, the multipliers, force multipliers in your book really goes back to that point where you chose to purchase your freedom instead of a house. And to tie this, you really have to listen to episode 47, but you guys were looking at a piece of junk, literally barely standing house that was going to cost $800,000. And what strikes me is Wait, that- was it five guys? Yeah, it was 500000 Then the flippers took it and sold it for 800000 yeah. yeah. What strikes me is if you had purchased a $500,000 house, between your mortgage payment, the interest that's attached to that, the property taxes that get attached to that, that's going to soak up your first forty k a year, basically. I mean, basically, yeah. you're going to create yeah. a baseline of expenses of around $40,000, and you're still going to need to work to pay for everything else. And yeah. when you made this choice, hey, let's use that to buy our freedom, your entire life cost is for that same amount. So it's really, you know, it's incredible. It's not to say that people can't own houses, but when you take a look at the math, you realize how powerful some of these decisions are. And in your case, you chose what you value, which is this effectively total life freedom. I want to come back and talk just for a second about an open loop versus a closed loop, because you guys yeah. didn't just retire and everything just worked out. Like the market tanked or had a, a, yeah. there was a bump in the road basically right after you pulled the trigger. And that goes to something that everybody needs to be considering. Whatever happens in that first five years where you're actually drawing down on the money that you've invested will be the biggest indicator of whether or not your plan is a success or a failure according to the, the Trinity study. But even more than that, what I think isn't captured in that study and assigning a number like a 4% rule, et cetera, et cetera, is that it can't be dynamic. That is just, hey, what number rules them all? Where what you guys talk about in this book, which is incredible, is the idea of building a plan that will work for you basically regardless of what the market does, because you're not going to stay static, right? If the market, if, if what, basically tell us what happened to you guys and how your system allowed you to buffer the storm. Sure. So the challenge of running your portfolio when you're just investing and still working is a little bit different from how you invest afterwards. It's a whole like long section of the books. So I won't get into it now, but basically you care more about the yield on your portfolio after you retire than before. So what we did was after we retired, we pivoted our portfolio away from just pure equities into more fixed income, as well as other assets like preferred shares, REITs, and, and, and other assets that I won't go, get into completely here. But what that does is it raises the yield on your portfolio. The um, VTSAX has a yield of a, of a dividend yield of about you know 1.9%. You know, but by using these techniques that I outlined in the book, I was able to get our, our yield up to about 3.5%. So when you do that during good years and your portfolio is higher than when it started, you can take that yield and then maybe sell five thousand dollars worth of capital gains. However, what you really don't want to do is when you hit a down year, you don't want to be forced to sell assets in order to raise money for your income. So what you can take to do is you can still take that $35,000 of money that comes out of the portfolio. And then we also had a keep a little bit of cash outside of it, just in like a savings account in something we call the cash cushion. So it's in order to make up that $5,000 gap, we kept like $15,000 in that savings account so that that will be able to survive a downturn of like three consecutive years in this kind of stuff. So we had 
the yield shield strategy, we also had a cash cushion, uh, which is a cash buffer outside of it. And then on top of that, we layer in this geographic arbitrage, this world travel stuff that we do. So if we... So if it all falls apart, just go to Taipei? Exactly. If, <laughs> if it all if stuff hits a fan, you just go to you go to Thailand because when you go to Thailand, your cost of living drops dramatically, and it could drop by like you know half. What our experience was that living very very well in Thailand cost about twenty thousand dollars. We recently we recently went back and tested that again because the first time was a few years ago, and we were just there two weeks ago, and it's still twenty five thousand U.S. dollars a year, and we got massages every other day. So what this effect happens is, <laughs> yeah, I know. You you guys need to come along. We'll show you. Yeah, really. But uh, but the effect of this happens is that our portfolio is yielding thirty five thousand dollars, and I don't have to sell anything regardless of what the market does. Yet living in Thailand, you can live on twenty five thousand dollars. So even in a market downturn, I can simply just lie on the beach in Thailand and still make money. Because my portfolio is yielding higher than what we actually need to spend. When we left, like three or four years ago, we our, our total net worth was about a million dollars. And because of stuff like this has happened, even though we've had like the oil crash thing, even though we've had all this like stuff that caused the stock market to crash uh, at the beginning of this year, our net worth is now sitting at one point three. We've been getting richer the more we vacation. Yeah. When you realize like how to arrange your life and how to arrange your finances in just this subtle way in which all of these pieces can play off of each other so that you always win and you always make money no matter what the market does, it becomes a superpower. And then it just kind of goes, boy, I need to show everyone how to, to do this. And that's kind of what we did with Quit Like a Millionaire. That's awesome, guys. So the book is Quit Like a Millionaire, No Gimmicks, Luck, or Trust Fund Required. It comes out this coming Tuesday, July 9th. Just final word, like, what would you want someone to take away from this book, right? There are obviously a lot of FI books, but to me and Jonathan, this one, this one stands out. But I'd love to hear, like, what would you want someone to take away from it? Okay, so the defining phrase that basically shows you what our book is about, and this is actually picked out from J.L. Collins, who actually has written the best forward ever, you'll see. The defining sentence is, if you figure out money, life is incredibly easy. If you don't figure out money, life is incredibly hard. And I have found that from my background, uh, going from 44 cents a day living in China to like becoming a millionaire. That is absolutely true. Money is not some scary thing that needs, like you need a PhD to understand. Money is just a series of lessons that build up together and it's a tool. And if you figure out how to actually use this tool to buy your freedom and simplify your life, it's incredible. Like it changes everything. As a result, I have not been in fear of poverty for many, many years, which is something that I, I always grew up with and that I was always afraid. Do you feel like you still have a scarcity mindset, Christy, or has it evolved over the last several years? It's definitely evolved. I think I have an optimizer mindset and I'll always have that because that's just part of my identity. But in terms of scarcity, I have not been afraid of, oh no, if I buy this item, like Will I, you know, lose all my money and never be able to make money again? Or, you know, what, what if the stock market crashed? Like the first time with that scarcity mindset going into, I mean, it, we basically started investing in like 2009. <laughs> so that, that was not a good time to be investing. And what I realized was that my scarcity mindset was the thing that was keeping me from doing that, but it was actually causing me to miss out because I'm putting all this money into a savings account, losing money to inflation while being afraid of the stock market. But the fact that we survived 2009 and we actually, uh, we talk about modern portfolio theory, which we, we really trusted the basis of that theory. And we actually bought as the money went down and we rebalanced and we actually didn't lose any money two years later coming out of the great recession has made me realize that I don't need to to be afraid anymore, that my scarcity mindset, although helped me get out of poverty, I no longer have that 
impending sense of fear for like never invest, never do anything outside the box, never get out of your comfort zone. So I think my life has improved dramatically by figuring out money and by going to the other side and not constantly worrying about scarcity. All right. Again, to everybody, the book is Quit Like a Millionaire, available anywhere books are sold starting this Tuesday. And Bryce and Christy, thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. Thank you so much much for having us. And before we leave, can I just add one more thing? Of course you can, uh, Bryce. You can always have (laughs) the last word. (laughs) There is, we've been doing a lot of interviews for like the last three years. When we first started, reporters were coming up to us and saying, what's this fire thing? You guys are crazy. Like very, very, very skeptical. And then lately, just basically like this year, the reporters are now like, this is a movement. This is a movement. The fire is spreading. The fire is spreading. And I'm hearing that from everywhere. Like they're, they're using the phrase, the fire is spreading. And I'm like, yeah, That's and I nice. and I completely credit you and your podcast for that because you keep saying it, you keep saying it, the fire is spreading, the fire is spreading, and then movement, pe- yeah. and, and movement, 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 and then people are believing it, and it's becoming something that is so much bigger than you or me or Money Mustache or Jim or anyone that the mainstream is now seeing this not so much as this weird loner, this weird blogger. They're seeing it as a movement, and they're seeing this as a movement that's spreading, and that is completely because of you guys. So good job on that. Well done. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> I got chills, man. <laughs> We're just going to have to say it more. Yes, absolutely. Say it faster. Definitely say it more. Yeah, Louder. absolutely. Yeah, that That's was awesome, all guys. you, dude. That was, nice that, that was awesome. Nice work. All right, super grateful to Bryce and Christy for coming on the show and sharing this with our community. This book is really good. I mean, it's really good. It's got a compelling story. It's got a story you will not find anywhere else. I I think the journey that they have been on both separately and together in aggregate is unlike anything else that I've ever read. I'm so grateful that they're part of this community and I hope you will check it out. I wanted to mention two other things. Christy is actually in this documentary, Playing With Fire, and we are doing a special screening, Brad, here in Richmond on July 19th, Playing With Fire coming to Richmond, Virginia. And I think we're, we're changing the frame just slightly for this event. We're actually promoting it as an evening of financial and Yeah. I mean, this should be a wonderful evening. We rented out the famous Bird Theater here in Richmond and can fit up to 600 people. So, I mean, this could be the biggest FI gathering of all time. And not only from people within the FI community, but we anticipate that it's going to be hundreds of people that are new to this message. And yeah, to your point about the evening of FI, it's going to be an intro presentation by the two of us, then a screening of the movie. And we expect cast and crew to be there. And yeah, I mean, it should be an amazing time. Super excited that Scott and Taylor are finally going to get a chance to come to Richmond, Virginia. And one of the thing I wanted to mention, like this is an open invitation to our entire financial independence community. I, I did ask Josh Overmeyer publicly on the show last week to come. He said, I'm coming. He's <laughs> flying in from Florida. Also, Allison Goddard, who we interviewed in episode 86, is flying in from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Brad, she asked me when I'm here in Richmond and if I stay for an extra day, what is a must-see thing that I have to do while I'm here? <laughs> I'm setting up the tour guide. What do you got? <laughs> what is it like if, if you want, if someone comes to Richmond and they have an extra day here, what is something that everybody would have to do? Yeah, I mean, I would probably spend some time down at the James River. We have this amazing James River park system. There's this island called Belle Isle 
that's just in the middle of the jams. And you take this like amazing suspended bridge that's underneath a highway, like out to the island. It's, it's super cool. It's really just nice to explore. There's some rocks you can hang out on and just have a picnic, get some sun and maybe even wade into the water a little bit. So, I mean, that's probably my number one thing. What yeah. about you? Yeah. I mean, I was coming up with like different breweries and things, but I think if yeah. you're going to travel here, I mean, you can get breweries in a lot of different places and they're very cool breweries, but yeah, the James River and Belle Isle in particular would be awesome. So, all right, Allison, I told you I was going to get you my feedback. I didn't tell you that I was going to ask Brad publicly on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fun. And yeah, a huge shout out to Josh. I, I, I joked, I said, hope we didn't guilt you into it with the mention. And he said, haha, let's say it was a contributing factor. So yeah, <laughs> very excited he's making it. And, and yeah, and this is going to be a fun time. So if you're looking for tickets, just chooseify.com slash Richmond. You can get a ticket to this event on Friday, July 19th. You know, if I can just take another half second, just to our local Richmond community, I know there's many of you that have been listening to the podcast over the last year or so. We both want and need your help with this. One of our goals by doing this extra, actually the entire premise for the podcast, Brad, when me and you had this chat, actually the first time we ever talked about Choose FI was at Carytown Burger, less than a quarter of a mile from the Bird Theater. I mean, it's on the same street. So I didn't even think about this at the time. It was pointed out to me after the fact, but one of the stated goals for that was I don't feel like I have a way to bring this topic up, financial independence to my friends and family. I don't feel like I have the message for it. I don't, I'm not able to button it up. This 20 minute presentation that we're going to be giving at the intro of this documentary to set up the documentary is two years of messaging, right? It's two years of us kind of working through this. We realize that this is the obvious choice. Everybody should be pursuing this. It may look different for different people, but the pursuit, everybody should be on this journey. Two years later, this presentation is really our kind of highlight reel and how in a vacuum I would introduce this concept to someone that hasn't heard of it before. And part of that is we want people that haven't heard of this before to be there. So we're asking you, you know, please, if you're coming, consider bringing a interested or maybe party that doesn't realize they're interested, invite your friends, your family. If you are a business owner, invite your coworkers, invite your employees. Let's see if there's a way that we can start this dialogue. I, I think that this is beneficial for the community. It's beneficial for Richmond. You may find at a micro level, it's beneficial for your network to be able to foster these types of dialogues. Join us, help us make this event awesome. We need and want your help with this. And again, for tickets, chooseify.com slash Richmond. If for some reason you're hearing this and your idea of bringing my community is like five, 10 or more people, please send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know we can help you out with some volume pricing on that as well. All right, my friends. Well, unfortunately, that's going to bring this episode to a close. Again, for the next several weeks, there are screenings happening all over the country. Selfishly, we are taking a little bit of additional time talking about Richmond, but there are so many fantastic screenings happening all around the country, and we want to make sure that we are advertising those. If for some reason you are waiting on me to tell you that these screenings are happening, then just stay tuned. At the end end of the episode, I will mention all the screenings whose deadlines or ticket thresholds you're about to hit within the next week or two. You don't really need to wait for that, though. You can just go to chooseify.com slash tug. That's T-U-G-G. And uh, you can find a screening in your area. But if you prefer to hear it from me, I will mention the screenings coming up within the next two weeks at the end of the episode. And I have uh, pre-vetted all of the cities, so I won't be able to say them. <laughs> your pronunciation will be better this week? Yeah. I think Jen was just throwing some in there just to prank me <laughs> last night. All right, guys. Uh, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. There are actually... Uh, 
well, normally there's three books that we offer, but whenever we're doing a, a episode dedicated to a book like this, we like to actually switch it up and offer, you know, this book's in particular as well. So JL Collins book, The Simple Path to Wealth, Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. And then this book uh, from Bryce and Christie, Quit Like a Millionaire, we'll be offering as well for a limited period of time. If you want to enter the drawing for this book, all you need to do is just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Follow the instructions there. Leave us a short written review. Send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get, and we announce a winner on the Friday Roundup. Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, this week we have one winner, and the winner is Eric. And he said, this opened my eyes to a whole world of opportunity. Brad and Jonathan have shown me a different path to get off the hamster wheel and start living more intentionally. My wife and I have started saving more, paying off debt at an accelerated rate, and finding ways to be more frugal, all while paying cash to put me through college. Brad and Jonathan share the experiences they have gone through and their guests have gone through in a real and relatable way that is both interesting and entertaining. Thanks, guys, for opening my eyes. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time. All right, guys, thanks for hanging out for this. As a reminder, this is not every screening that is happening. This is just the screenings that have their ticket threshold coming up in the relatively near future that need some help with the promotion. We're just trying to do our best, whatever we can to support these, to make sure you know about it. We realize not everybody's on Facebook. Not everybody gets their information from Facebook. And so wherever possible, we want to lean in and help where we can. All right, so July 8th, Santa Cruz, California, Bozeman, Montana, Foxborough, Massachusetts. On July 9th, Poughkeepsie, New York. On July 10th, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Rockford, Illinois. On July 15th, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Farmington, New Mexico, and Boston, Massachusetts. On the 16th, Medford, Oregon. On July 17th, Reno, Nevada, Littleton, Colorado, Roswell, Georgia, Pearl, Mississippi, Mountain View, California, and on the 18th, Gaithersburg, Maryland. Go to choosefi.com slash tug, that's T-U-G-G, to find a screening near you. And if there isn't one, you can ask to start one, which would be fantastic. We will support you however we can. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.